0: I get a kick out of different people's names, and it might be because I have a weird last name, (laughs) but I particularly like it when the name and the occupation line up. Uh, Let me give you some examples, and these are real-life examples. Dr. Bowser is a veterinarian, (laughs) or how about this, Dr. Wack, a chiropractor. Dan Druff is a barber. Dr. Payne, <laughs> oh my teeth are is a bar, is a dentist, and I like this one. Auto no go is a mechanic. <laughs> and this next one, I don't think I'd go to him or her for surgery. Dr. Slaughter is a surgeon. Sonia Shears a beautician. Dr. Whitehead, of course, a dermatologist. Rose Flowers works as a florist, <laughs> and Dr. Smelzy. A podiatrist. (laughs) You know, names are important. And names are important to God. From the very beginning of the Bible, we read this. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God called the expanse heaven, and God called the dry land earth. He also gave names to different people with the meaning of the name often characterizing their character. For instance, Isaac implies laughter, Jacob means deceiver, and Moses refers to being drawn out. I've mentioned this before, but I can't help bringing it up again because I always think of it. So in our family, uh, there's one particular couple in our extended family who spent a lot of time figuring out what to name their children. They're very intentional. So the couple's name is Bob Bill and Bonnie Bill, and their kids are Bernie Bill, Brenda Bill, Bruce Bill, and Blaine Bill, (laughs) and their bunny named Bertha. I made that one up. So, names in our culture are important, but they're even more so in biblical times. Proverbs 22 1 says, A good name is more to be desired than great riches. Well, names just didn't distinguish or label a person, they often revealed the very nature of a person. Consider Nabal. That's an unfortunate name because his name means fool he actually ended up living out his name for samuel 25 25 nabal is his name and folly is with him the term for name in the old testament means individual mark it communicated well it communicated an individual's essence who they were in the new testament the word for name comes from a verb which means to know Now, a change of name indicated a deliberate and decisive redirection of a person's life. Consider Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. Jacob, deceiver, became Israel, God contends. Sarah, My Sarai, my princess, became Sarah, princess of a multitude. Simon, one who hears, was given the name Peter, rock. And so a change of name in the Bible often referred to a change within a person's nature. In the Bible, to know someone's name was to really know the person. Now, conversely, if you didn't know someone's name, you didn't really know that individual. We could say that a person was somehow present in his or her name. That's one reason we've been encouraging each of us at the end of our services to look around to the people that you're seated next to and introduce yourself Work at learning names. It's so important. It's been a minute since I learned that hormones such as dopamine and serotonin are actually released into your brain when someone says your name out loud. Last weekend, we discovered how the curse of Adam's sin brings suffering to everyone. Part of Eve's consequence, she would experience pain in child, in motherhood, and she would have problems in her marriage. Penalty for Adam, what he would experience, the futility of labor and the finality of life. Well, today we're going to learn about the purpose behind a new name and the provision of new clothes. Next weekend, we'll focus on a new place for Adam and Eve after they get expelled or evicted from Eden. Eden. Here's our main idea. God gives us a new name and a new nature when we receive his son as our sacrificial substitute. Our text today is just two verses Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Listen carefully as I read. The man called his wife's name Eve. We're told why because she was the mother of. Of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God, we've been worshiping you as we have learned more about you through our study in Genesis. And Lord, you tell us in your word that as we drink deeply from your word you compare it to the milk of the word that as we drink we grow up in our salvation we grow up as Christ followers lord you also refer to the word as meat and lord we need your we need to drink deeply and eat deeply now because we're a people who well frankly we need to grow And Lord, some of us have been drinking from other things this week, chewing on things that are worldly and selfish and sinful. We've allowed words to reverberate within us. We've said words that we shouldn't have said. We've done things we shouldn't have done. Lord, we thank you that you have a clear message for us today. Lord, help us to lock in, to listen, to embrace to worship you as we discover more about your word. Lord, ultimately, we'll learn more about you and the sacrifice of your son. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look first at the purpose of a new name. By way of reminder, look back to verse 19 of Genesis 3. This is how we ended last week. It's kind of a downer till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam is told that his destiny would be death and dust. Now, with that in mind, it's amazing what Adam does next in the first half of verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. That word called means to announce To be named. Now, with the sentence of death ringing in his ears, he gave a new name to his wife. Well, let's go on a journey by way of review. Let's consider what she was called. Chapter 1, verse 27, she's called female. In chapter 2, We come across verse 18, helper, verse 23, woman, verse 24, wife, verse 25, wife, chapter 3, verse 1, woman, chapter 3, verse 4, woman, verse 6, woman, verse 8, wife, verse 12, woman, verse 13, woman, again, verse 13, woman, verse 15, woman, verse 16, woman, verse 17, wife, and then we come to verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve. You know, surprisingly, this is the first time she's called Eve in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. The name Eve means living one means life giver it means making alive or life spring so her name reflected her nature after hearing about his destiny of dust and death in verse 19 you'd think that Adam might name his wife something like the grim reaper or something like Eve it's all over we're gonna die we're just gonna go back to the dust but he doesn't he names her life giver. When Adam named his wife life, he valued her. <laughs> he fulfilled his role and he made a statement of faith. Though he would die, God would grant life to their offspring. And because of sin, the woman would have pain and childbearing. That's justice, but would also have the promise of children. That's mercy. So this week, I made several observations, and as I did, I worshiped. I'm going to invite you to join me now as we worship, as we consider these observations. Number one, consider this. Adam had once blamed Eve For his past sin. God, it wasn't me, it was this woman. Oh, and by the way, you gave her to me. She's the one who did it. Now he names her in light of future promises. He didn't seem to resent her for her rebellious act of sin, but gave her a fresh start, which is what we should do with others, right? Just as God does with us. Adam chose to focus on life, not death. The commentator Delich calls this grace in the midst of wrath. Consider this. Every time someone spoke Eve's name, it would signify life. Number two, Adam affirmed Eve's personhood and the unique role God had given to her. She doesn't remain nameless. She's not just the wife. She's not just the woman. By giving her a personal and proper name, he affirmed how valuable she was as one personally made in the image of God. This weekend, Friday and most of yesterday, a number of women from Edgewood participated in a women's retreat. I reached out to Sheila Kershak yesterday and I asked her, how is God using that retreat in the lives of our women? She responded quickly. She said, we're learning that each of us are made in the image of God. And God has given gifts, unique gifts to each one of us. And he's done that so that we make a radical impact in our world today. Number three, this act of naming counteracts the alienation that had taken place within the first marriage. Naming Eve reinforced that they were in relationship with each other. And listen, They had a mission to accomplish together. Observation number four, Adam stepped up by exercising his leadership. The act of naming was the prerogative of his role as the humble head of his family. As my friend Ben says, we must not skim too quickly over the fact that Adam is once again naming Having abdicated the authority of guarding the garden, remember he allowed the serpent and Eve to even have that conversation, Adam now is filling that role and standing up for what is right. Observation number five, Adam demonstrated faith and he held on to hope when he called her life giver. You see, at this point, Adam didn't even know what pregnancy and labor would look like for Eve. In other words, he named her Eve before she was a mother. Now, to pick up with, of the themes of Jeremiah 29, 11, Adam and Eve had a hope and a future. By the way, that's our theme for our four Easter services, resurrecting hope. With Jesus raised from the dead, he brings hope to the hopeless because he's conquered the grave. He's conquered our depravity. He's conquered the devil himself. Observation number six, Adam locked into the promise of offspring. Genesis 3.16 says, Eve will bring forth children. Even though Adam and Eve were destined to die, they would be fruitful and multiply and they'd leave a legacy of life for generations to follow to counteract death eve would be the mother of all the living let me make an application for our world today are you aware that according to the bible we're all part of one race the human race When we tend to divide people, right? We divide people according to skin color, ethnicity. Oh, you live there? Where people live. We categorize and in the process, we struggle with racist and prejudicial behaviors. But it's important to remember that the Bible tells us that we have one common mother and father. Number seven. Adam was demonstrating his bold faith. Now we have to think clearly here and go back to Pastor Kyle's sermon from two weeks ago. His bold faith that out of Eve's offspring will come the promised Messiah. I like how Nancy Guthrie says it. Faced with certain death and inevitable suffering, Adam put his hope in the promise of the offspring who would crush The head of the one who led him into sin. Isn't that a powerful statement? That Jesus, Messiah, would crush the head of the one who led him into sin. We can stare the curse of death in the face and celebrate the promise that this curse is not God's final word. Now, it is for these reasons, and I'm sure a lot more, Adam labeled Eve life giver. Look at the second half of verse 20. We see the word because, because she was the mother of all living. That's the reason she's named Eve. Oh, would you observe also that it's in the past tense? She was the mother. Adam was so certain that this would happen, that it's written as if it already had taken place. It's as good as done before it's done. Though death was coming, life was on the way. We could say that this is the first profession of faith in the entire Bible. Ray Pritchard points out that Adam knew there was no going back and there was no covering up what he had done. Don't you think Adam would have wanted to go back and and not commit that sin? The worst decision in the history of the human race? We are in the spot we are because of Adam. But Adam couldn't go back and fix that. And also he couldn't stay where he was. Ray calls this the first law of spiritual progress. I can't go back. Apply that in your own world. Because each of us have done things, said things. In the past, they were like, oh, if I could just redo that. But we can't. It's been done. It's in the past. And secondly, we can't stay where we are. We can't stay paralyzed by the guilt and the shame and and just stuck where we are. And therefore, we must go forward. Adam could not go back and undo the original sin. And he could not stay forever In Eden, the deed was done and the wreckage was all around him. The wreckage is all around us because of his sin. And the wreckage is within us as well. The only option left is to go forward. God gives us a new name and a new nature when we receive his son as our sacrificial substitute. Would you observe next in verse 21, there's a provision of new clothes and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Observe once again, we see a compound name for God here. There's actually two names, Lord God. In the Hebrew, that's Yahweh or Jehovah Elohim. That compound name for God, we've mentioned this before, but I want to keep bringing it up, it's so powerful, is used 20 times in Genesis 2 and 3. When these two names are used together, we're reminded how God is powerful and he's personal. He's the creator who makes and he's the covenant maker who keeps his promises. He is transcendently holy and he's tender toward us. He's mighty and he's merciful. He's imminent and he's intimate. He's sovereign and he's savior. He's majestic and I can say he's mine. So we see the Lord God's compassion on display when he made clothes for Adam and Eve. God is the world's first clothing designer as he gave his final gift to Adam and Eve in the garden. The word made means to accomplish a distinct purpose, to complete a goal. It's the same word used in Genesis 3 7 when the first couple made themselves those hastily sewn loincloths in a futile attempt to cover up their sin. The word garments refers to a long undergarment, it went from the neck down to the knees, or sometimes down to the ankles, and down to the wrists. What a contrast to those loose-fitting fig leaf loincloths. I mean, fig leaves are scratchy and sticky and don't hold up well. I like Ray's inside. it made me smile. There are so many problems with fig leaves. They fall apart easily, they itch. It's hard to find the right size. And every day or two, you've got to get a new outfit. Plus, you can't do much plowing or planting or serious cooking if you're wearing fig leaves. (laughs) Now, as I reflected on why God clothed Adam and Eve, I thought of 10 possible reasons. And I'm going to invite you to to go back if you've been daydreaming on your trip. Hope you had a nice trip. (laughs) Marty, are you back? Okay. (laughs) All right, let's lock in here. This is only about five minutes of the message, but but I want you to get this, and I want to invite you to worship with me. Why did God clothe Adam and Eve? Number one, to help them face the elements in the harsh environment they would live in after they were expelled from Eden. More about that next weekend. Secondly, to demonstrate how God always takes care of our necessities. This is stated in Matthew 6.31. Remember, Jesus said, hey, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Number three, to establish the importance of modesty and protect them from embarrassment. Now to be naked in Israel, in ancient Israel, was deeply shameful. No one could approach God on That's especially the case among the priests. We read in Exodus 20, verse 26, they were not allowed to approach the altar if they were not fully covered. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Well, let me pause here and make another application to our World today. You ready? Some of you are going to go right on, and others of you, maybe not. So here goes. We need to reclaim and reassert the importance of modesty in how we dress as a way to protect the purity of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Related to that, you ever considered why you're wearing clothing? I'm glad you all have clothes on today. I'm really glad. Have you ever stopped to think about it? Like, like why? Before the, sin, before the fall, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. Once they sinned, they start covering up. They cover up from each other, and they try to conceal themselves from God. They go hiding in the trees as if they can hide from God, right? And so the next time you're picking out your outfit, think of that. The clothing reminds us of what we lost because of sin. Number four, to show acceptance and belonging. Well, my mind goes to the parable of the two prodigal sons. You know, the one son was at home. He never left, but actually he had left in his heart and his head, right? He's doing some judging. He's dealing with entitlement. What about me? What about me and my needs? Here's this younger son. He just runs away. I mean, all that going on. Anyway, think of the guy who ran. He spent everything he had of his father's inheritance, which is like saying to his dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's how you get inheritance. So he's got his money. He goes and he spends it all, and he ends up eating the stuff pigs are eating. And he's like, what happened? So when he's low, I don't know how much lower you can get in that culture, even to be around a pig, right? He decides to go back home, but he's scared. He doesn't know what his dad's going to do. So he prepares a speech. He goes over that speech, and as part of his speech, he's ready to say, hey, "Dad, can, can I just be one of your hired servants? Just put me out in the field, because I'll, I'll be Better cared for there than the mess I'm in here. So he makes his way back. And what's the father doing? He's looking for his son. And when he sees his son, he takes off running. He embraces his son. And what's the first thing he gives him? A robe. Is it any robe? It says the best robe. That robe was a demonstration of complete approval, of love, of mercy, and it was evidence of a restored relationship. Number five, we'll develop this more, but to picture the need for atonement. This comes through the shedding of blood, the suffering of death, and the substitutionary sacrifice of another. Here's another reason number 6 to demonstrate how serious sin is. Their sin cost innocent animals their lives. Number 7 to show how their feeble attempts at covering up their sin did not work. I mean their clothing is inadequate, insufficient And all they did was take leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree and tried to cover up. God took the life of animals. One commentator said it like this, Adam had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by and that would grow again next year, but only by pain and blood. Number eight, to show how God must provide what was needed. Do you notice God doesn't, like, add on to the fig leaves? Like, oh, you guys did a good job. Let me just add on a little bit to what you were doing. Uh Uh-uh. Fig leaves are gone. God gives them new clothes. God killed the animals. God made the skins. God covered them with clothing. Number nine, to show the mercy of God, Adam and Eve deserved death because of their disobedience, but God made a way for their sins to be put away. And number 10, to show the grace of God. God also gave them what they didn't deserve as he moved toward them to restore their relationship. Now, let's do a deeper dive here. These garments were made, do you see it in the text, from the skins of animals, Now, it doesn't say specifically, but I wonder if Adam and Eve watched as God slaughtered these animals in front of them to make their garments. I wonder what it was like to see all that blood spilled from innocent animals. This is the first death in the Bible. And that those animals were sacrificed to provide covering for them. I wonder if they were horrified as they saw the animals Adam had named and possibly nurtured be sacrificed, be butchered before their eyes. Their... Sin cost these innocent animals their lives. So, with the sacrifice of another's life, God clothed Adam and Eve. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve should have been the first to die. But God provided substitute sacrifices for them. Friends, this foreshadows the necessity of suffering, of sacrifice and substitution. Years later, God's people were told to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and apply its blood to the doorposts of their house so that the angel of death would pass over Exodus chapter 12. Now, this is more fully developed in the Mosaic law. Let me take us to Leviticus chapter 4. It may have been a while since you've read Leviticus, but check out this beginning in verse 28. He shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish, for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make, here's the word, atonement for him. And he shall be forgiven. Last night after the service, a gentleman who's been coming to Edgewood for a couple months came up to me, he had his Bible open, and he said, you'll never believe this. He said, I was reading the book of Leviticus today, and I read the whole book of Leviticus today. I said, really? He said, after I got done, I thought, I've never heard a sermon reference the book of Leviticus, and I came tonight. Reminded me of a pastor who started a church. And most pastors, when they start a church, think very carefully about their sermon series because they have new people coming and people who don't know Jesus yet. And they think very carefully. (laughs) This particular pastor preached through the entire book of Leviticus for a year. And when he was done... That next weekend, they celebrated communion. And people started weeping because they understood it. All the blood sacrifices in Leviticus fulfilled by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross in our place. So this passage describes the doctrine of atonement. Every time an animal was sacrificially slaughtered as their substitute, its skin was given to the priest, the people would be reminded, reminded of what? Of their sins. Be reminded of the sin of Adam and Eve. They'd be reminded of the necessity of someone else paying the price for those sins. This all culminated in the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. (laughs) who is our sin substitute when he died on the cross. The covering then of clothing was a picture of how God provided atonement through the blood sacrifice of the seed, the offspring of Eve, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You may have come today or engaged online to hear these next two verses Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is what covered blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity let well, check out Isaiah 61 verse 10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Why? Well, here we go. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Thinking about all of this, thinking about how God had clothed Adam and Eve, took me back to a letter that I wrote to the dispatch Argus back in 2019. The title of the letter I wrote was this, Keeping Your Clothes On. Now you may wonder why I wrote that. Well, here's why. The Sunday before on the front page of the Dispatch dispatch Argus was a picture of a naked man. And underneath that indecent image was this headline, quote, we just like to have our clothes off. Wrapped around a photo of an unclothed woman riding a lawnmower was this long article with two more provocative pictures celebrating and promoting a nudist campground located just 30 miles from the Quad Cities. So unbelievably, the article claimed the resort was, quote, family-friendly. And? that the golden rule was tolerance. Well, I read that article, and a whole bunch of things stirred up within me. I just wanted to throw it. Well, then I decided to read it again. And then I marinated some more and prayed and decided to write a letter, which they published, and here's what I wrote. I believe the Bible is instructive for us on this topic. Before Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 2.25 says they walked with God in Eden, naked and not ashamed. However, after sinning, they were exposed and filled with shame, so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In Genesis 3.21, that's one of the verses we're in today, God took the initiative and graciously sought out the hiding couple and made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God provided a cover for them, not to punish, but to protect. He did so through the sacrifice of animals, showing them that covering sin comes at the expense of life. In addition, these garments of grace were necessary for their own modesty in a fallen world. In Genesis chapter 9, we read about Noah's nakedness. One son saw his nudity while two others laid a garment on, walking backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. So they would not see him in this state. These two sons knew nudity is not family-friendly. According to Jesus, the golden rule is not tolerance, but rather do unto others as you would have them do unto you, Matthew seven twelve. In contrast to our culture's ubiquitous sensuality, our clothing reminds us of God's sweet mercy. While modesty has become an outdated term, we're to keep private those things that are most precious, only within the context of biblical marriage are we to be naked and unashamed. The best I can do to cover my guilt is as inadequate and temporary as an ill-fitted fig leaf. God sent his son to clothe me with forgiveness. Jesus Christ is my perfect covering because he paid the penalty for my sins by dying in my place. While I wish the newspaper wouldn't promote nudity, my greater hope is for each of us to be covered by what Jesus did on the cross for us. In the last book of the Bible, we read, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Let's keep our clothes on and stories like this off the front page. Now, I'm grateful they published that. (laughs) Friends, have you ever considered this? That our souls are naked before a holy and righteous God? In light of his holiness, in light of his justice, our sins consume us. And there's no way we can stand before his holiness on our own. James Montgomery Boyce makes four summary statements. Number one, we need a covering for our sin. Number two, our attempts at covering ourselves are inadequate. Number three, only God can provide the covering we need for our sin. And number four, the covering God provided required the death of an innocent substitute. So just as Adam renamed his wife, so God reclothed the couple. Eve became the life giver. Fig leaves gave way to full-length garments of grace. Both of these actions indicate that there is hope and a future after the fall. Hey, settle this. Your self-salvation project will not, can not work. We need new names and new clothes. Let me say it like this. Let me see if I can say it in a sentence. Right now, you are either standing before God, clothed in the fig leaves of your own imperfect intentions, or you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ through the new birth. Isaiah 62, verse 2, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. In literal terms, the Christian concept of vicarious atonement, vicarious in your place, atonement is that Jesus was substituted for humanity and he was punished on the cross for our faults, to pay the penalty for all of our sins and the sins ever committed so you and I can be reconciled to God. Romans 10, or Hebrews 10, verse 4 says this. But in these sacrifices, he's referring to the Old Testament sacrifices. There is a reminder of sins every year. He's speaking of the Day of Atonement for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11, and every priest, this is Old Testament priest, stands, how often? Service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices again and again. All these animals being sacrificed. Think of all the blood. And then he says, which can never take away sins. Oh, verse 12 is such good news. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why'd he sit down? Because he's completed it. It is done. Tetelestai, the work is over. He's paid the price. God gives us a new name and a new nature when we receive his son as our sacrificial substitute. God is the one who killed the animals, and God ordained the sacrificial death of his son. It wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't just die as a martyr that somehow they caught him at the end. No, listen to Acts 2 verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This goes back to eternity past as we see in Genesis three, fifteen, and 16. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. I'm really looking forward to our Good Friday reflection time. As we focus on the three hours that Jesus was on the cross from 12 to 3. And we'll meet here from 12 to 3. You can come and go, stay the whole time when Jesus became sacrifice on the cross. I close with some insight from Pastor Justin Smith. Notice here that this is only one of two sacrifices God has ever performed. God provided the first sacrifice with the first Adam and with Jesus as the last Adam. God provided the final sacrifice. The first sacrifice pointed towards the second one much later. All the animal sacrifices in between. So think of all those years, those centuries of blood sacrifices pointed towards the sacrifice of Jesus. They all anticipated and foreshadowed his once for all time sacrifice on the cross. Now, you might say in doing the first and the last sacrifice, God was displaying again that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The first sacrifice in the garden was to clothe sinful man. It made atonement, meaning to cover. Adam and Eve were covered in shame. They needed their shame to be covered, but. The other sacrifice, the sacrifice of all sacrifices that Jesus made with his own body is the sacrifice that went beyond covering. It brings cleansing. The sacrifice of Jesus cleanses us of sin, not merely covering over our sin. So do not try to cover your sins by your good works. God sees right through them, and he sees your sins still. They can't wash you and they can't hide you from God. What you need to do is stop trying yourself to do something about your sins and instead turn to Jesus who has already done something about them. He died for your sins on the cross. Stop working off your sins by trying to cover them up and instead let Jesus cleanse you and purify you of all your sins. God gives us a new name and a new nature when we receive his son as our sacrificial substitute. We started with some names that made us laugh. Consider these names that God gives to you if you're a born-again believer. Child of God. Follower of Christ. Disciple.
1: Beloved.
0: Sanctified saint. Your body, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a new creation. You're an adopted son or daughter. You're an heir of God. You are a friend of Jesus. You are God's workmanship, and you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's someone here today who's not yet trusted Christ and you're just trying to live your life with your loincloths of good deeds and trying to figure all this out, listen, today could be your day of salvation. I'm going to ask everyone now, if you just close your eyes, and if you're ready to receive Jesus as your sacrifice, would you pray along with me? I'll say some words, and if they reflect where you're at, you could repeat them silently. God, I want to own that I'm a selfish, self-centered sinner. And Lord, there's times I try to clean myself up. Other times I try to cover up. And frankly, there's other times I just don't care. And I just do what I want to do. But Lord, I, I want to confess that my sins, well, they're consuming me. And I don't know how to stop. And I don't want to live like this anymore. And so I repent. I turn from how I've been living. And I turn to you, Jesus. Because now I understand that you died a death you did not deserve. You died as the innocent Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world and to take away my sins. For when you were on the cross, your blood was shed And God the Father accepted that as full and final payment, satisfying his divine wrath. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose again on the third day, showing your power over death, over my own depravity, and over the devil, whose head will be crushed. And so not only do I believe that and understand it, I don't want to just... Do that in an academic way. Uh, Lord, I now want to ask you to save me. I invite you to come into my life. I want to be born again. And so not only do I believe, I now receive. Make me into the person that you want me to be. And Lord, if there's anything in my life that has to go, get rid of it. Help me to live under your leadership, your authority for the rest of my life. Lord, as a follower of yours, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, man, I would love to chat with you after the service or another pastor. If you came with a friend or family member, or if you're engaged online, send us a note. We'll help you get started.